Uh, I'm just gonna be standing right over your. Yeah, I'm gonna the wake up in your bed, <laughs> watching every breath that you take until you finally open your eyes. I'm like, oh great, you're awake. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Red Rum and Red Wine podcast, the podcast where we talk about murder, mystery, and mishaps. And my name's Kristen. And my name is Sarah. Uh, I'm I'm so excited to be <laughs> <laughs> The final chapter of the John Story story. I did not realize how much work actually went into these, like, four harder stories like oh shit i feel like i haven't stopped talking for like a week and it's taken like a week to tell the whole story pretty much a little bit over. yeah so thank y'all for sticking with it and now <laughs> final chapter oh what are you drinking <laughs> i'm drinking a mimosa this is a day recording, and it's Saturday, so you know what that means. Oh, uh, no. I'm I'm too traumatized from the champagne to even think of having anything like that. So, uh, I have a diet coke. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, alcohol has scared me, and I'm taking a break until later on tonight when I have a glass of wine. But, you know, just take it in stride. Take it in Hell stride. Oh yeah. Good for you. Mm, my mother would be so proud. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I guess let's just hop right ooh, hop right into this. So, you know, how did we end it off? So, <laughs> yeah, where were we? Oh, yes, 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 yes. So, de- the detective of Lovell, Dave Wilcock, um, with the help of the like state attorney, the Terry Tharp, decide that they are going to bring criminal charges up against Story after that whole informal, formal meeting blew up on them um, when they basically like agreed to revoke his license and then did a complete 180. And they're like, no, you can still practice at least until this appeal is taken care of. But it's an appeal, so that can take forever to accomplish. So... They are gathering evidence to help bring up these criminal charges up against him. And and they bring in our girl, Judy, who comes in to help talk to the victims as well as write reports on all the bad shit the doctor did. So they find a cassette in the brown bag that belonged to Terry, um, Terry Timmons, Terry Lee Timmons. Um, that describes her assault with Story. And then they find a doctor that would basically confirm to them that, like, in fact, no, you don't need to have that many pelvic exams, especially during a pregnancy. The length of that, the length of a pelvic does not need to be as long as Story's have been. And that there is, in fact, no examination tool that should be mistaken for a penis used during an exam. So with all of this evidence, Judy goes up to the judge presents all this evidence and finally they have enough information to go through with arresting Dr. Story. Hmm. 
All right. So starting off with part four, it we are starting off with his arrest. So he was actually arrested on Halloween Day. So Wednesday, October 31st of 1984. And they're trying to do it in a inconspicuous way because they are very much so worried that if they do this in a public sort of matter and people realize that they're arresting Jonathan Story, that these people can potentially like protest and actually go to the jail and kind of like break him out essentially oh. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. like they're a riot they're worried that a huge riot is going to happen and it's going to cause a huge uproar so they're trying to do it real inconspicuous but story actually isn't in the office so they end up arresting him at like the only intersection in town yeah because it's like halloween they're out everyone's out and about so yeah they literally found him on the street yeah, he huh. was walking, I think, to his car, and he even had, like, shit in his hands, and they pulled over it, and obviously he acted, like, pretty annoyed, and he was like, what the heck is going on? And when they would take him to the office, he would even become more annoyed, because they would make Judy do the first line of questioning, oh, and Story was, yeah, his Story was, like, taken aback. He was like, how could a woman be in such authority to ask me questions? So he was being really rude with her, and he would even go as far as to refuse to sign the little sheet of paper saying that they had given him his Miranda rights. He was like, I'm not going to fucking sign it. Yeah. Like, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> We're just giving this is like a formality. So yeah. Whatever. I wonder what happens if they refuse to sign it, you know? You'd probably have to like get some witnesses to say that, oh, this is in fact like something. Yeah, like a witness really signature know. maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, when people found out that he had gotten arrested, they would pressure the police to let him and the judge, I believe, that they um, called for the arrest to let him out on bail because one of the church members, Joe Brown, would point out that he's the only doctor in town and he just did uh, he just did a surgery this morning. And if you let anybody in this town die, it's your fault. Or if anybody gets hurt and he wasn't there, it's your fault for not for taking him away from us. And. I guess the court and the cops kind of had their hands tied with so many people getting upset. So they were just like, fine, we'll let you out on bail. Just you can't leave, obviously. Right. Okay. Uh, all right. So <laughs> he's the only doctor in town who can't arrest him because he needs to be a doctor. But that's where he's abusing people. So that's why we're arresting him. Yeah. And that's why we're letting him out. <laughs> the the delusion in this town is high it's very high. <laughs> it, it makes everything very um frustrating to talk and read about but yeah it's just overall like delusional that's all you can call it so terry tarp would advise the women to stay quiet about the case uh to the press to any investigators that are coming in from outside of the case and in the meantime they are really working because right now, there's no local judge that would even agree to handle the preliminary hearing. Mm -hmm. So you're having... Because, like I had mentioned in the previous parts, like, doctor rape was, one, not a something that we were, like, really charging anybody with back in the day. Because it was, I guess, back in the day seen as something that, like, could not be done. It It's like a, when... Even when Arden had gone to one of the state officials to ask about it, he said, like, 
oh, your problem is that you think he's done something wrong, but according to our statutes, he hasn't. So, like, the law has really not been helpful in protecting victims against doctor rape, Mm -hmm. and it's because of that a lot of judges just don't even want to mess with it because it's just seen as something that is not going to have a happy ending but finally they would get the washaki county to agree and two weeks after the arrest they would bring uh they would bring them into the county and story's lawyer would go ahead and subpoena every complainant on the list that they had submitted in order to get story arrested and at this point even though we had an informal informal meeting and interview none of the women had testified in a group they had all just come in individually and i really only think that alethea was the one to actually like face story face to face in the informal formal process so at this point, none of the women really know who each other is, but once lawyers, Story's lawyer subpoenaed everyone, they would be forced to meet into a room uh, and appear in front of the court. And it was said that on the day that the women were going to meet each other, in the hallways, you could just hear cries and shrieks of surprise as the women would walk in and they'd go, oh my god, no, not you too. Like, Wanda, not mm-hmm. you too. And it's just like, Damn. Yeah, girl. Hashtag me too. I know. It's it's just. So at 7 p.m., Story was bound in total with 17 counts of sexual assault, three involving Minda Brinkerhoff and one each involving Meg Anderson, Juana Garcia, Alethea Dirsch, Julia Bradbury, Susan Maldonry, Kayla Farewell, Emma Lou Meeks, Dorothy Brinkerhoff, Wanda Hammond, Anella St. Thomas, Terry Timmons, Caroline Shotwell, and her daughter Mae Fisher, as well as Emma Bersenio McNeil. The offenses that were brought to him dated from 1967 to 1983, and the victims' ages for this were from 15 to 68. Oh, wow. Yeah, and if convicted he did have the potential to receive life in prison for these charges. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just (laughs) wait. So, with Story's arrest and obvious impending doom, his supporters are freaking out. They are going into overload. We are talking about, like, Dave Wilcox, the investigator the like fucking police chief of the town said that after story's arrest he started uh to be followed by someone and he would say like he didn't know if it was the same person because sometimes it would be a woman and sometimes he would swear that it was a man and two of story's former nurses that had had information that was used against him to like stain his character they actually recanted their statements, and one of the nurses would even wind up on the defense list in support of him. Holy shit. Uh-huh. And on top of this, if they weren't going after the fucking police chief or character witnesses for story, they were going against the actual vin- wit- victims themselves. 
Uh, I know a lot of the victims would receive letters from just random people in the town as well as uh, there was a town from the Lovell's former minister that got printed in the paper and he in the paper basically shamed all these victims said that they were lying he himself knew some of the women had even recanted their statements even though they hadn't so he was just going out and like spreading false information across the town and the town was really like reveling in it they were going with it i know um I believe it was Wanda that I had said had worked in the grocery store where, like, her, uh, the people would avoid her line specifically. Mm -hmm. Like, she, it got so bad to the point where she would even end up, like, fired because of this. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're getting really harsh repercussions of these victims if they do anything outside of, like, walking out of their home. It's really... Jesus. Yeah, it's like... Yeah. Uh, obviously harassment but it's like a witch hunt yeah it really is it's it's just really and it gets worse it even got so bad that tharp the lawyer terry would even receive calls from the victims saying that they did not know like if they could continue Mm. and they really in the moment felt like they were being given up on because at that point like no one it felt like no one was on their side yeah and it didn't help that during the time that this was all going on, um, because I do believe I say it later on, but like six of the women end up getting dropped from the initial charges that are brought against Dr. Story. Uh-huh. And part of the reason I think that happens is because the MacArthur women decide against the advice of Terry and the other lawyers to bring a civil suit against Dr. Story. And basically in the civil suit, both Meg and Minda are asking for $1.5 million each, so a $3 million payout in total for the events that happened to them in Dr. Story's office and basically, like, the emotional damage right. and whatnot. Now, I, com- I completely understand why they would do a civil suit and this is not to bash them for doing that in any way but from a legal standpoint them doing it at the time that they did just was terrible 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 timing because you have to rethink back from I believe like part two or part three doctor story will say multiple times that like particularly Arden is money hungry they owe a lot of money to the doctor and part of the reason that they are doing this whole sexual assault suit is because they're money hungry people so for them to turn around and now ask for three million dollars in a civil suit it's kind of feeding into that rumor that doctor story was giving them and on top of that in a civil suit Because unlike a criminal proceeding where there are strict limits on how deep or like how many questions you can ask about a complainant's personal life, when you enter a civil case, like anything is game. Everything and anything you want to talk about, you can pretty much ask because it's a civil case. Oh, damn. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's and it's kind of why like... um, when Nicole, Nicole's family didn't get the 
guilty verdict for OJ in the criminal proceeding, they went ahead and they turned it over into a civil suit and they actually ended up winning the civil suit. And I think it's because they're, it's just like more laxed and the type of information you can give, I guess, because it's not like a, a jail sentence, it's a money sentence. So maybe they get like more, um, relaxed with that. I don't know, but very interesting, but because they are using the civil suit in terms with this criminal suit, what it made it seem like is whatever they admit in this civil suit could be used in the criminal suit as well. And it kind of would, that's where it would bite them in the butt because during the civil suit, Meg would be forced to admit that she had a relative in the past that had made her feel his penis on multiple times. And she would have to describe her quote-unquote shameful shameful inventory of basically like all of her past sexual relationships that she had had before getting married Hmm. and they would even go and do the same to Minda and deem her as some kind of like immoral snowflake and ultimately both of them would have to admit that they had been kicked out of the church because of their like sexual nature quote-unquote yeah you know Another large blow that happened was that an old friend of Dr. Story, Dr. Russ Baldall, would make us, he would make a psychological profile that one is completely fucking inaccurate, but two just like completely ripped apart Alethea's character. Yeah, because okay, John Story's friend does yeah. this psychological analysis as if he has what grounds to do that on like Mm -hmm. he's not a professional is he Mm -mm. he's just somebody who well i mean he well like he is a doctor but but he's not a psychological like a criminal psychological analyst he i don't think so and how he gets the fucking information like he doesn't even sit with alethea and talk to her face to face no he gets his his profile from simply like reading shit from like reading reports from the case and he's like oh i've read the reports i now understand this person fully i'm like that's that does not equal you understanding that's not how it works you haven't even you haven't even talked to them you don't even know what their voice sounds like like excuse me but in his report he would say that alethea was doing this because i mean she was infatuated she was in love with story okay Mm-hmm. yeah just just yeah by so by simply reading reading the records not talking to anyone not questioning anyone he simply read some records he said that alethea was devastated by the sexual guilt that she had felt since childhood for story and basically there are two instances that really did happen so they really used this instance of her baking bread and taking it to him and then another instance of her painting a picture for him and bringing it into the office which again is something that she did but it does not equal romantic notions because in the book like I was fucking reading one you had everyone in the goddamn town baking him a casserole when shit went bad for him so it's not weird for you to bring a doctor in a small town a loaf of bread and two in the book it would say when john had first gotten to the town like people would literally be like oh thank you for fixing my broken arm here's two goats that's payment (laughs) enough so it's it's like these people it no you they give shit away it's 
it's not abnormal community and if that didn't sell you uh, when Alethea had painted the picture real early like at the very beginning of the book it had talked about how when she had the stories never never put her picture up in the office and it like obviously no big deal whatever but after Alethea decided that she was going to be a uh, witness in the informal formal interview and the stories found out that she was going to be a witness they decided finally that's when they would hang her picture in the the office and and Marilyn because Alethea would go drop off mail or something Marilyn would even be like oh look Alethea we finally got around to hanging your photo as if that would fix anything yeah, and Alethea in her mind was literally like, I wonder why you finally got to hanging it around. Yeah. It's like, I have a lot what? of questions about Maryland. Because that alone, that I'm like, she fucking knew way more than she's letting on if when that happened, she's fucking hanging up. Like, Marilyn, homegirl, you can't be that fucking dense. I think you're just acting it. Yeah, like, she's doing some sort of damage control, so she knows yeah. the damage. Yeah. And, oh, 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 the shit we find out later on, I'm just like, okay, it's, well, well. Oh, God. Okay, so. And the cherry on top, like I had said, uh, prior was that because of all of this, because of the civil case, because of um, some of the stuff that's coming up, some of the slandering, six women were dropped from the case, though it it was more so that like it wasn't they didn't have any solid evidence or they didn't make that reliable of a witness. So one thing is like the MacArthur women even though they brought these charges about and they're like the whole reason that I'm saying this story, they were one of the six let go. So technically Jonathan's story is never charged with any type of sexual assault or rape that's done to Minda or Meg. It's really the other victims that bring him to jail. And that's most likely or mostly because of the civil suit that they, too, got dropped. Them, too. Yeah, it's a lot of the civil suit because of the information that was going to be used against them. And on top of, unfortunately, they were just, like, real giggly girls. And I know, I believe it was Minda. She, like, liked to talk a lot. And when Julia had met them, she would describe in the book that they just made really terrible witnesses for the stand and Mm -hmm. that if they put them up there it was kind of more of a liability than it would to get them anywhere closer to getting him arrested gotcha so the trial would be set for april of 1985 and just for reference the informal interview started in i believe like 1982 so that's how long this whole process has taken And that is another reason why they really had wanted to bring the criminal charges because even to bring these criminal charges took around like a year, two years. So it's really just shows you how long he could have gotten away with it if they didn't work to bring these charges against him. Right. So in preparation for the 
trial uh, supporters would start holding vigils daily for Story, oh. and they would be at Story's church from around 6 p.m. until dawn. Not for the for the family. <laughs> Not for the yeah. victims, though. Jesus. Not for the victims. No, no, no. For the family. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, though, in the meantime, our the victims do have the help of Patricia Wiseman, which I really just. If they did anything right with this case, it was bringing Patricia Wiseman on because they finally bring in this woman who is a counselor and can help these women first admit that no, like this, you could not have done anything to change what happened to you. Like you did nothing wrong. Someone forced themselves on you and you could have done nothing differently to change that outcome. Like you did the best that you could in that situation. And on top of that, Patricia is helping these women because, again, one woman in the case didn't even know what the word penis was. So you have to think these women are very timid. They have never seen a penis, let alone said it. And now they are about to have to sit in a courtroom filled with people and talk about their own assault. Like, it's very intense and hard to do I can't even imagine so Patricia works with them to really get them set up for when they sit on that witness stand they'll be able to tell their story and not be emotionally broken down while doing it mm. that's good yeah I, mean, I, I really do appreciate them for doing that yeah because going on trial like even if you are versed on the topic you're going for it can be extremely stressful with a lot of pressure and it can be emotional to talk about whatever. And so having that kind of prep is extremely important. Yeah. And you'll see the whole time that they're saying their experience, this tragic fucking thing that happened to them. You have a defense lawyer on the side trying to poke a hole and every little thing that you say so it can be very intimidating and on top of that as we'll find out later on like story I guess told his lawyer like one of the things that you should do to help make these women uncomfortable is to get them to like describe story's penis he really tries to put them in like really compromising positions where they're having to say in detail like really intimate things and it got to a point where like the jury was getting annoyed because they're like, why are you keeping having these women say, describe his penis? Like, we fucking get the point. But it was really like the lawyer trying to trip up the women. But thankfully, because they had been doing the work with Patricia, they were like, no, fuck you. It was a penis. There. So. Yeah. I mm. like I like that. They did that a lot. Yeah. It, it was a good move on their behalf. So the trial would oddly begin on uh the first day of holy week so it was kind of like people would be like oh my god that means he's gonna be freed and other people were like no it's the holy week because of the victims yeah (laughs) but either way it would be under district judge gary hartman now hartman would ban any mention of the medical board hearings and he would also place a strict limitation on the testimony of any law officers that were involved um basically I'm assuming, like, the law officers that people would go and make reports to, which is kind of fucking weird because it was a report that should have been made. But he basically said, like, no, we can't use that testimony because it's all hearsay. Hmm. So what this 
means is that the verdict of this case is going to lay entirely pretty much on the complaints that were coming from the victims moving forward right so the jury would consist of 11 women and three men oh yeah which is i'm like i kind of took it as a good sign yeah and i think i don't know i mean i would think so because you know women can be sometimes a little more sympathetic Especially um, to a woman in a sexual assault. Yeah, case, exactly. You know? But I have a feeling it's not the case. Like, uh, I have real mixed feelings about this trial, man. We'll we'll get into it. So it would consist of eleven women and three men, and a, of course, a fucking course, a lot of people from Story's church or a lot of his supporters would try to put themselves into the jury. Okay, it's not allowed. Not how it works. Yeah. Thankfully, a lot of them would admit it, though, so they would be like, no, get the fuck out of here. (laughs) But Tharp would, Terry would um, start the trial by naming the six counts of forcible rape and three counts of sexual assault that he was being charged with from 1967 to 1983. And, I mean, they started off hot. They got a young obstetrician and gynecologist from Coding, Wyoming, who I think bring some really like outside of the victims i would say that he is one of the main characters that like provides a lot of stable evidence as to story being a fucked up dude yeah so he would admit that you know as a gynecologist you know one should warn women because if you're inserting a speculum into them they're gonna jump because of how cold it is it's not heated And that is kind of saying, so you shouldn't be feeling, like, warm, fleshy body, like, skin. It should be cold. It should make you jump. It's shocking you so much. He would also explain that um, if you, when you have the drape, the little curtain across your knees to kind of, like, cover your modesty, it should be pushed down between the knees so that she can see what he's doing while he's working and he said in total the speculum portion of the exam should take two to three minutes Mm -hmm. and then he goes into detail saying the bimanual exam which involves the use of his fingers should be equally brief that essentially it's just you know you go in you find the cervix you go to the uterus you go off to one side You go off to the other side to find the ovaries, and then that's it. And in total, this whole thing, five minutes max. Yeah. I'm sorry if you hear screaming in the background. My child just woke up from his (laughs) (laughs) But either way, he would say that once the examiners would put their fingers inside of their patient, that it would be left in place it's not a push in and out type of motion like no penetration. And there should... yeah or like if it's a fucking finger penetration it's not a in and out type of right. motion it's like you're literally in and then you move around to feel and then that's it so all of the things that these women are going to say happens in stories exams like he's basically saying none of that should be fucking happening obviously uh-huh Ugh. Brandy would also state that there was no need for a doctor to be standing close enough that trousers or a coat would be brushed up against the patient or like fucking pen marks on their thigh. Well, you can't use that example because Minda wasn't 
assaulted, but like you or she wasn't being charged. He wasn't being charged for Minda's assault, but you get the point. Yeah. Um, and like normally the pelvic exams should not be fuck they shouldn't be given for ailments that are not pertaining to the genital region so oh my throat sore you shouldn't be getting a pelvic for that right (laughs) like oh my i have a cold time for pelvic Mm. no the defense attorney when he got his turn to uh question randy he would I guess really try to switch him up by saying, like, oh, well, do you really think it's necessary to have a third person in the room? Like, he would ask him point blank, do you believe whether or not a third person being in the room should be an option of the patient as well as the physician? Because Dr. Story's excuse was that a lot of his patients just simply said that they didn't want a nurse present in the room. And that's why he didn't have a third person in the room. It was not because, you know, he didn't want it there. It's because his patients didn't want them there. I they personally asked him. Asked. Yeah. And so Randy would basically, like, look at the defense attorney and he would go, I personally do not believe that it's, like, an option. No. The third person is in there for as my pro- as much for my protection as they are for that patient's protection. Hell yeah. And I'm... Fucking thank you, man. Thank you, Randy. Go take a seat, boy. Hell yeah, Randy. So next they would bring the victims forward. It would mainly be like the victims giving their testimony, saying what happened to them. And again, the story's lawyer, Aristotle or whatever his name is, really tries to poke holes, tries to either get them to trip up or to make them so flabbergasted at the thought of having to talk about a penis that they can't get their story out which is so fucking disgusting, but that's what he's essentially trying to do. Yeah, fuck that. And to make matters worse, I keep saying that, but everything gets fucking worse in this story because if it's not the fucking defense attorney, if it's not because it... I know, like, when... um, I know when Alethea went to the stand, like, she she broke down a little bit. It was very much so where she almost got asked to leave the stand because she was getting so choked up over having to fucking say this tragic thing that happened to her in front of a shit ton of people that you don't even know and you're trying to tell them a story and make it come across as yes this is something that happened to me because it did and you need to help me and all the people she's saying it in front of are like stories supporters basically yeah and fucking they they laugh <gasps> they will cat call like these ooh these fucking people there is one point i Ooh, let me find it. Okay, judge, get your court in order, damn it. Yeah. When Terry Timmons takes the stand, she starts telling her story of her assault, and it's uh, Terry Timmons is the one with the brown paper bag, so I believe I said it in part three, and I like went word for word over her really fucking horrendous assault of how she had lost her virginity to story at the age of 15. Ugh. And while she is trying to tell her story she i guess the way she's trying to say her story is very much how i like to say mine sometimes and they're very drawn out and detailed and kind of like you kind of get off topic and then you get back on so the defense attorney is trying to get her to get to the point and basically saying like just take her off the stand she's not even worth it she's not even getting to the 
to the sent to the actual uh, assault and as the defense attorney was like hounding her trying to get her to give these more specific answers you could hear the story supporters and the people in the courtroom like i guess laughing at her or kind of like mocking her or kind of jiding or like going along with what the defense attorney is saying and just giving out these nasty cat calls and it gets to the point where terry's sitting in the courtroom like as she is asked a question she will like look up and look around because she can hear everyone talking about her and i don't know why it takes so long for the judge to say something but finally the judge bangs his gavel i guess like when he starts to notice that it's affecting terry he banged his gavel and he was like ladies and gentlemen of the audience i'm gonna have to abolish you please do not make any comments to each other regarding the course uh during the course of time that the trial is in session and you know i'll kick you out if you continue but he he does a really bad fucking job of doing this because the, it happens multiple times and he never ends up kicking anyone out. Uh. So he just continues to kind of like let it happen. I know where when Wanda approaches the stand and she is telling the court how Dr. Story had dilated her and she's getting to the part where she lifts his hand, her hand, because... She, in her mind, like, knew that she was getting raped, but she just didn't want to believe it. So her way of checking was she put her hand down there to see, like, what was actually going inside of her. And at that point, she felt his penis and she, like, jerked away and was like, Dr. Story, like, what the fuck are you doing? And while she's saying this, someone had the fucking audacity to just flat out laugh. Like... Uh, oh my god, that's so funny when that wasn't even a joke. Like, you had nothing to laugh at. Like That's so fucked up. If anything, just fucking say liar. Like, why are you laughing? Yeah. None of that is funny. Even in a fucked up joke kind of way, like, none, it, nothing about that. Right. That's sickening. Just, I... Oh, these people. And these people are people of God. Like, right. God's gonna ha- God's gonna need to sit down and have a long conversation with you about victim etiquette because not it, <laughs> not treating one like you would treat thy neighbor. Treat thy neighbor how you treat your fucking self. When this person laughed at Wanda saying her story, Doctor Story would look up from his yellow pad and give a faint smile. <gasps> I want to punch this fucker in the face. I okay. So. When I when I read the book, I I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I'm the only one that does this, but when I'm reading a book, I like play the movie in my head or I like pretend to try to. Like I have visuals. pretty bad imagination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I I just do like little tiny scenes if I can make it. And this one was like one of the most intense scenes. <laughs> so Diana comes into the courtroom and it's like Ooh, this would just be like the most intense scene in the movie because as soon as she goes and she's walking up like Everyone gets quiet. And she's and one of the like, victims, psh, right? Psh, 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 psh. She, Diana is the nurse that um, had worked for Story. And basically, she's, her aunt is Emma Meeks, who was assaulted. And she, her friend, her aunt Emma was also the friend of Julia. 
Um, so Diana wasn't assaulted herself. So I think that's why this is such a big thing is because she's saying I wasn't assaulted, but I have evidence that showed me that he was doing it. Okay. So, and she's the one also that found the semen in the waste bin. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which I believe I had said in like part three, two or three. I get confused. One of the parts. <laughs> <laughs> one of them. You can go back and find it. But when she takes the stand, she would confirm that, you know, she would notice him coming out of the exam rooms very fast. His hair would be ruffled. His ears would be red. (gasps) And as soon as he would get out of the room, he would immediately go straight to the bathroom. Mm. Terry, the lawyer who's working for the victims, would try to get Diana to talk about the semen that they had found in the waistband been during dr story's exam but lawyer's story was like not fucking having it and he really tried to get this part omitted from the case he would basically call it he said of the semen being in the waistband it's highly uh i know this word okay i just know i'm not gonna say it right uh prejudicial 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 Pre-judicial. something like that remote and irrelevant And his face would show in disgust when she would try to go into detail. And he's like, this is just so remote and irrelevant and prudential that we just, like, can't even conceive of such a testimony being allowed. He would be like, does she, has she even smelled semen before? (laughs) Like, if we're being completely honest, like, what would, um, what would Mr. Tharp say if he was trying to use this witness to interject as much as uh, extraneous prudential information. He just says a whole bunch of fucking mumbo jumbo that I do not understand that I copied and pasted. Yeah. That's just basically like it's bullshit. He sounds but like, like he it's objected not- a lot to actual relevant information and he sounds really fucking annoying. Yeah. Reading the transcript because Jack Olson did an amazing job of you can actually see it it will go it'll go back and forth from like um he'll give detail to them talking back and forth to where it's just the actual transcript q and a but it it's just very interesting to read highly recommend the book sorry let me plug it jack olson wrote it uh doc the town rape of level thank you jack rip you fucking wrote this whole four parter for me pretty much but he um does a really good job of writing or giving you um the actual report and in it dr story's lawyer is just i object i object i object every fucking every fucking other sentence was i object and i'm like bro i'm getting so annoyed like three or three to five separate times they would have to like stop the questioning and go up to the judge and the two would just like the three of them would argue for a little bit and then the court would go back i i know that there's a term for that but i just can't remember it but it happens a lot. Like, there's a lot of pausing. There's a lot of arguing. There's a lot of objection. And, like, Terry barely objects. I'm just like, be more like Terry. Yeah. It makes it way easier. Jeez. Thankfully, the judge was like, no, let's allow it. Because it is, it's relevant to a sexual assault case if you're finding semen in a waste bin. I, mm-hmm. The logic is there. L- Story's lawyer is not. <laughs> but he would say that. Terry would have to be really careful about it and give like the quote unquote proper foundation because if 
he questioned it in a certain way that it wasn't a proper foundation, which I don't even know what the fuck that means. But he was saying, like, if you don't do it in the way that I like, this will be a mistrial because you're going to say something that the jury won't be able to, like, get out of their heads, even if I say, like, it's overruled. Yeah. You know? Or not overruled, if whatever. If Lawyer it's, like, talk. taken out of whatever. Yeah. Omitted, whatever. Yeah. He was allowed to successfully, like, get the tissue story out. And after this whole ordeal and them completing their list of all of the victims, at 3.30 p.m. on Tuesday, April 9th of 1985, the sixth day into the trial, the state would rest its case. And uh, now it was turn time for the defense to make its case. And it estimated that this would take around two weeks. Huh. So... They would first start off with Marilyn, and she would testify that, you know, she interrupted Dr. Story many times during the exam. And they'd be like, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? You walked, you barged into there? You just opened the door and walked in? And she's like, no, I would go and knock on the door and wait for him to come to the door and say yes. Huh. So okay. I'm like, oh, so you so you didn't interrupt him many times. Right. I mean, I guess you did, but not how you're trying to make it sound. Exactly. In the whole ordeal with, like, her being questioned, she would write in her journal later on, like, my testimony was so easy to give. You know, it isn't difficult when you have nothing to hide. Okay. <laughs> like, I roll, Marilyn, I roll. But she... That was really the only juicy thing that she said. It was pretty boring reading it. Um, after Marilyn, they would bring 14 straight character witnesses, which half of them were nurses that had worked for Story. And I, I'm not even going to write about it. It's just people going up and saying, oh, my God, he's such a great person, blah, blah, blah. But it gets to the point, like, so annoying where the judge and the jury were both like, okay what's the point like, yeah, like halfway in <laughs> yeah they were like halfway in the judge was like are they going to say anything other than like how good of a dude he is like are they actually going to say something that would provide evidence that he in fact did not do this and they were he the <laughs> Aristotle was basically like oh no not really they're just here to talk about how great he is mm -hmm. and they're like yeah no I, I don't care I, no one cares so on April 11th of 1985 at 10 a.m., Story would appear and, of course, like, the cheers and hums of support would begin. And, of course, the judge would try to silence them. And basically for half an hour, Story would talk about why his pelvic exams were needed and would go into detail over what his exam entailed. And he would say, like I had mentioned previously, that you know, he had talked to patients and the main reason that he didn't use a third party in the exam room was because the women insisted that no one was in there with them. Mm -hmm. And at one point, Story would refute to specific points in complainant's testimony and he would use his memory and like office records to say that like, oh, I wasn't wearing a lab coat or a suit on certain days or like, here are the inconsistencies with this victim's uh, story and, like, what I really thought and, like, what really happened according to me. He would say that, like, with Terry Lee Timmons, I did not even give her a pelvic exam on that day. And two years later, when she was 18, he would finally give her an exam, but it was, like, a virginal type of 
by vagina. It was a virginal type vaginal rectal exam. So it wasn't rectal. I don't even know what the fuck that means, but it, I guess it's just like a, it wasn't a bad exam. In his eyes, maybe. <laughs> Story even denied administering a pelvic to Emma Lou Meeks on October 3rd of 1997, as she had testified that he had. She would say that she simply had a mole on her left breast that day, and there was no reference of a pelvic exam on his chart. And you'll... Like, one, you'll see that that happens quite often, but two, I don't know if I say it later on, I think it's written in here somewhere, but he, when the detective was... when the detectives originally went to Dr. Story's office to retrieve the medical records for the complainants that had you know, put in a complaint about story. Marilyn, one, this is you being sketchy, a fucking gen oh, Marilyn God. would give, like, it would take them days for them to get certain person's records. And it's like these person, like Emma's record. Um, I do believe I say it because I say the two names, like it was Emma and someone else, the, their records who like story would go and say like, oh, that didn't happen. And their chart said it didn't happen. Their records would take days extra to return to the detective of course like they wouldn't give it to them when they originally asked so obviously fucking implying that they they were changed they altered changed something happened alethea's chart as well said that you know no pelvic was given on her birthday the day that she had said it happened and for wanda he would basically say that her records show that she had come in for an insertion of a iud and this would have required the presence of a nurse, so there's just no way that I would have assaulted her. And the last woman that I do believe was charged, he gave an excuse for every single woman that was brought up a case against him. Of course. For Emma Brasenio McNeil, he would say that uh, her chart showed that she had been hospitalized for three months before her pelvic exam on April 18th of 1977. And Story testified that she needed the pelvic exam because it was due to acute abdominal pain. It was a painful infection, a venereal infection, so it, like, needed to happen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> oh, yes, and here it is. So for Wanda and Emma, when they got arrested, he could not provide records for Wanda or Emma. I said Evan, sorry. For Wanda or Emma, he could not provide records for them. It took him some time. So, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely had the potential to be altered. For Anelia St. Thomas, who had testified that he had p- performed only one pelvic exam on her, uh, like fucking weird and i don't like this is not how i would have written it if i were him but their office office record showed that she had in fact had three uh pelvic exams Uh over the course of several years so i that was kind of odd to me i don't know why he would add on more or like maybe something sketchy or maybe she like had him and didn't realize that that she was being assaulted you know and she only like thought one time she was assaulted so she only considered that one exam kind of you just like i read that and it just did not that didn't sit comfortable with me right it like definitely gave a different feeling than like oh it was omitted (laughs) like yeah But, yeah, the doctor was a master slanderer, no doubt about it. Like, he lied 
he falsified records. He portrays Wanda and Anelia as liars and pretty much any victim that has said anything against him. So when Terry Thart finally gets a chance to talk to him, to, in, to question him, he tries to put a hole in the bogus chart. And he would even, in fact, get Story to admit that he had, in fact, given Julia Bradbury, Bradbury 12 to 15 pelvic exams, <laughs> Alethea Dirsch at least 19 <laughs> pelvic exams, May Fisher received 11 and Hala Farewell received 29 <gasps> pelvic exams. Okay, so just doing the math on myself, like, I actually haven't had one in a few years, so I probably should go get one, just, you know. Yeah. But um, oh, yeah. it's a literal once a year type of thing. Once you hit a certain age or once you become sexually active, you know, you're, you get them once a year. And so that being said, you know, minus the two years I haven't gotten one, 27, I've maybe had eight. Yeah. It's mind And there's always another person in the room, at least, Mm -hmm. if not the full-time, part of the time. And nurses are allowed to go in and out. Yeah. The fuck. He's just, he's like a literal animal that can't be stopped. He, I I don't get it. It's, something's wrong with him. Seriously, seriously wrong with him. And it's weird how, because obviously um, we find out that he gets a, not obviously, sorry. But later we find out that the judge does, you know, tell him he, he needs to get mentally examined. And like the people can't find anything wrong with him, which like makes it even scarier. Ugh. Well, they find a little bit. We'll get into it. But Terry would also point out that the excuses that Story had made, such as the pelvic inflammatory disease that he had diagnosed Emma McNeil with, uh, were missing from the charts altogether. So stuff that he openly admitted right there on the stand were not in the charts that they had. What the And so it's a big, yeah, it's a big gotcha yeah. Fucking gotcha. Like, got so if you you're lying keeping... and making excuses. Yeah. So, like, if you're making shit like that up or you're excluding that from the chart, then who else knows what you're excluding? Story. But Story would, of course, be like, oh, no, 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 no. You're, you're not a doctor, Terry. You're a lawyer. If you were a doctor, you would look at that chart and you would, like, be able to see what was going on. Even though I didn't, like, write it down, you would be able to make up that diagnosis. It's not how charts work, but okay. No. And I'm fucking rolling my eyes. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) And then, ooh, Terry really fucking gets him. Because, um, so like I had said, the judge was not allowing any type of medical board hearing nonsense unless you know story fucking openly admits to it like how he does when he admits that he has actually gotten a letter in the past from a medical board person uh, after a man named nelson saint thomas had put in a complaint because story was doing some weird shit oh fuck a man Ooh. I I think, like, the husband mm. or whoever. Yeah. Or, like, an uncle. But they continue to 
get into the questioning and like i'm i'm not joking like please if you think any of this is interesting if you want more information on it go check out the book because it it has the literal transcript of what i'm giving a really rough summarization on so definitely go check it out jack olson r.i.p dude you the man doc rape of town of level um you can find it anywhere but story would continue to say that the table that he had used it was pretty much like impossible for someone to be assaulted or raped on that table which is a huge it's like a side note it's a huge 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 part of the case the certain table that doctor story has because like i have said in the previous parts it's only exam room two that this seems to be happening in and it's because exam room two has this specific table in it and one of the victims emma who had testified in this uh trial she would talk about how she was raped by story on this table and her daughter was playing with the controls. Mm -hmm. So like the controls on this table make it so that you can move the table, you know, up and down. I think you can like lengthen. It's just a, a really fun, cool table. But the thing about it is, is that this table is not necessarily meant for pelvic exams. And it was kind of weird that he was using it for pelvic exams. Uh. But Story would say, like, oh, I'm a doctor of the town. You know, I I used it for things other than pelvic exams. It's just also something that I used it for, too. But he would he would basically be like, I needed it for surgery. Or I needed it for certain procedures that I would do in office. And that's why I needed to get the table. But he would say that because of the certain table that he had, it would make it impossible to have sex on it without some type of cooperation. Like the girl needed to be willing in order for it to make it work. But when Rand Flory, our boy, I'm sorry, I probably have been calling him Randy. It's actually Rand. <laughs> so when Rand Flory. <laughs> uh, yep. Randy. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, sorry, Rand. I, you know, that was me. When Rand would go back on, or I don't know if he came back on the stand, but when Rand was on the stand, he would say, Rand, he would say it is possible actually to have sex on the gyno table. And they would start questioning and be like, oh, how are you so certain? And he's like, well, because me and my wife went into the office late at night and tried it. <gasps> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Rand, you dirty, dirty dog. <laughs> but, so he, he would even go as far as saying, like, so not only have I done it on, like, a regular pelvic exam table, but um, seeing the table that Story has, Rand would say that he would think that it would actually be easier to rape a woman in a table like that because of how he was able to adjust the height on it. Right. Uh-huh. And when Story's lawyer heard this, he went fucking nuts and tried to get it out. He was like, nah, you can't use that. We can't use your own sexual escapades in this courtroom. And the judge is like, fuck you. It's valid. Like, that's useful information. Yeah. Ugh. Hell yeah, Rand. Hell yeah, Rand. Sorry I called you Randy, man. <laughs> Me too. Kristen's fault. <laughs> it was I I take the blame. I take the blame. So next we have fucking Cal Taggart who um oh, 
you know, I know I said it earlier. I forget what he did. He's some important person. He either is like the mayor or something like that was a mayor. I don't know. But he would fly in from his stupid little winter home and would go into Lovell and say how honorable, honest, and truthful story is and how, you know, I've never seen him lie and there's just no way that he could do anything wrong. But then when Terry gets up to the stands, of course, over the many fucking objections from this stupid lawyer, Aristod, <laughs> Terry would get done. <laughs> it's like Wayne Aristod, A-A-R-E-S-T-A-D. I'm not going to say it right. And that sounds like a little German. So I'm like, Story, are you okay with this? <laughs> Anyways, I don't, it's probably not German. It just sounds that way. But Terry would get Cal to admit, because I have mentioned, if the name Cal Taggart sounds familiar, it's because it is. It is. Because Cal is the, I want to say mayor, I really can't remember that far. But Story went to Cal and was like, hey, they're revoking my license. I'm a good guy. Help me out. And so Cal would admit that, yeah, you know, I, in fact, did go to the governor to put in a good word against Story because he was having his license revoked from the medical board for raping people yeah Ugh. and this is when the shit kind of like starts unfolding for dr story and you know it's just kind of all going downhill oh good so one of story's friends dr rung had made this big deal about like there's no way that you can rape someone in a gyno table because there's no way you can get your genitals that close to the bed and He, they, like, I think have a skeleton or something that they put on the exam table, but then they, like, physically show you that, oh, you know, like, it is very easy to get your genitals right up close and personal into that bed. And it even gets to the point where he gets questioned over a letter of support that uh, was written in the Lovell Chronicle because Dr. Rung was one of the people where it was like, we love you, Story, we hope you know, 25 years and 25 more to go. Huh. And when he gets questioned about it, he straight up goes like, oh, no, my wife wrote that. I didn't write that. Because <laughs> he's getting nervous now. I think he's starting to, like, fucking realize what's actually going on. But I'm like, bro, you threw the wife under the bus yeah, like that? <laughs> These people in the town have no fucking mercy. No mercy. So, Caroline uh, Shotwell would also testify and i do uh caroline did work for story as well and she was also assaulted by story but she would tell the court how one of dr story's office procedures for the night was that uh they would raise the lid on the garbage replicate every night in order to dry it out and then they would take the contents of the garbage and put it in the incinerator in the morning <gasps> burn all the evidence that's not and normal no and caroline was like you know i thought it was normal i'm like no caroline that's fucking weird you should question if something like that is happening but i mean no offense to her she just probably had never worked in a fucking doctor's office before so she's probably like oh they all do that right but, oh <sighs> if you are working in a doctor's office they don't do that that's not mm, no no Report report them if they are doing that, please. <laughs> so, in 
Story's lawyer would then give a 165-minute closing argument, which I'm not going to talk about at all. (laughs) Thank you. It's basically like 165 minutes of pure shaming the victims and telling the jury that the only way that Story could have done this is if he were, like, demented and he's not, so he's not guilty, pretty much. (laughs) Whatever. So the jurors would deliberate over a 15 and a half hour period over a two day span hmm. before coming out with their verdict. Oh, God. I know. We've waited. I'm on the edge of my floor pillow. Let's hope it's not bad. <laughs> so a few I I really had a hard time getting an exact date on this. All I know is it was a few days after April 15th of 1985. The armed police would handle the crowd as the jury read out that all 12 of the jurors would find Jonathan Huntington's story not (gasps) guilty of the rape of Alethea Dersh. But, there's a but. Okay. Because, of course, as soon as they hear this, the fucking supporters are rallying and they're so excited. But then they hear the word guilty. (laughs) So, story would be found guilty for the first-degree rape of May Fisher and Terry Timmons. He would be found guilty for the sexual assault with intent to commit rape against Wanda Hammond, Halia Farewell, Anelia St. Thomas, and Emma Lou Meeks, while he was not found guilty of the cases against Alethea Dersh, Julia Bradbury, and Emma McNeil. The judge would right away demand a mental and physical exam, and while he was being walked away, one of his patients would pin a flower to his suit. (gasps) (sighs) We're not done. Okay. I still um... still have... Yeah. Okay, but I do have a question. You might cover it in a minute, but, like, why not Alethea? I actually don't cover it and unfortunately it's just something that I uh, we don't know as readers it's something that uh, like the jury gets fucking like almost needs to go into witness protection oh, after this because the the jury the supporters will like start harassing the jury and be like oh, why did you pick how you picked like fuck you change your mind he's a great man mm. Like, the shit goes crazy. Even after being found guilty, shit is, like, just crazy till the... Even till today. (laughs) But you don't necessarily find out why. And for Alethea, I didn't write any of it down, but it is really devastating for her that, you know, the jury didn't find him guilty of her attack. Because she really took it as, you know, they didn't believe her. They it kind of like invalidated that whole experience and it was just like well was it rape even if like this court is even saying it's not rape it's just like it was very hard on her but you don't ever find out why they decide the way that they decide it's probably just like the evidence the way that it was set up the way that uh you know it just went it Mm. sucks but it And again, it really speaks to why, you know, we get really mad at Terry and we get really mad at the people that 
in the end help these women because they ask for such high numbers. But now that everything is over, you can kind of see why they ask for so much. Because even if it had just been like Alethea, Emma, and Julia, Dr. Story would have walked off. And that's three women. Yeah. So it's really tragic and it puts it highlights our justice system in such a very it's just a fucked up way there's no other way around it it's we call it justice but it's really not i feel like it's it's really hard for us to ever think as a society we'll come up with a way to get it to where it's a hundred percent fair for both the innocent and the guilty and the victims of it but right it, I mean, that's like an episode in itself that you can just. But the fallout of the case, of course, is pretty terrible. Um, the jurors wanted armed escorts <laughs> reasonably. And the woman and their children of the victims would be harassed and tormented relentlessly. Uh, Diana's children would get teased in school and they would call their mom a sperm sniffer they would even get letters sent out uh, in the mail and even the judge would get a letter in the mail like pretty much a death threat saying that he had made a serious mistake throwing story in jail my god what no one could have anticipated while this trial was going on was that over a thousand miles away south of Lovell, and just six weeks after the trial and three weeks before John was sentenced, police would cut down the body of a man who was found hanging from a tree in Mesa, Arizona. Now, it would take some time to find out who this guy is, but he would be later identified as Daniel Enoch Flores, and he is a private investigator (laughs) who had been hired to research the MacArthur women after they had filed the civil suit against him. I don't know if he had been hired by Story, but I think it was someone on Story's side who was trying to get these women, like, just taken care of and caught and out of the way. Oh, my my God. Now, he had originally gone to Arizona in order to interview a woman who had claimed that she had had a son that could potentially be Story's. I don't know if it's the same as the son or as the woman who had had like a 20 year old son who had called um terry or julia but regardless when he went to go and talk to the son that was potentially stories the son would give the name of 121 victims that had been listed in files and were inside of his truck that had reported that they were assaulted by Story. (gasps) Police, when they found Daniel's body and car, none of these records were there, and they were never found. Goosies. Goosies. I was not expecting this story at all to come up in the book. Goosies. Yeah. Because did he actually commit suicide because he couldn't handle the guilt? Did someone fucking kill him because he found out too much? Mm -hmm. Like, it's a mystery within its fucking self. It's crazy, man. This, like, little side story, I was like, bro, what the fuck? 
and that's like literally all we hear about it and that's all they say about it i don't know anything <laughs> else about it like that's literally it sorry i just had to throw that in but yeah 121 victims so that is where we get the huge jump but yeah on the mental and physical assessment that was ordered uh, to Story, they would find that Story had an IQ of 135, which is pretty high. Um, but there is no indication of any type of major psychopathy or any type of like cerebral dysfunction. <laughs> he is not mentally ill. So There's... he's not a sex addict? No. The one thing that they did say, though, because of the way Story was... And the way that he wouldn't admit that something, I guess, was wrong with him or he because he never admits to the assaults to this day, he claims that he had nothing to do with it. So the fact that he does not have the ability to, I guess, like admit something that actually happened. One of the investigators named Paul Saronin would state that he believed that story would show signs of sociopathy. Hell yeah. Yeah, he was showing signs of being a fucking sociopath, but it's, like, never proven. Right. But the investigator is, like, out of my research of these people, like, I would say that he's for sure sociopath. I would diagnose him as sociopathic as well. I called it, it makes it makes sense. uh, maybe the first part. Yeah, it it definitely fits. And this Paul Saronian guy is hired after Story's trial to pretty much do an investigation up until Story is sentenced to essentially give the judge his thoughts or any extra information that he could find to say, you know, I found this so you shouldn't sentence him as hard or I found this you need to give him a harder sentence. You know, just kind of helping the judge with any information that might make his sentencing valid. I don't fucking know. I didn't know that people did this or that this was a thing, but it's like what happened with this case. So what Paul does is he actually digs a little bit deeper into Story's history, specifically his life before Lovell. Right. (laughs) And what we find. So he would find a resident in Crawford, Nebraska, where Story had worked before moving to Lovell, where, and he had worked there with another doctor. And that doctor would tell Paul that he believed Story had gone into some kind of trouble as a young physician, and that there was actually a woman that had made a complaint to him, though the woman would never go to police. Hmm. And... When Paul goes to talk to a nurse that had actually worked for the doctor, his name was Dr. Bishop, and Story, she would say, like, if you ask me to testify, I'm not going to testify, so don't do it. But what you can write down is that he would force teenage girls to fully undress before their (gasps) pelvics, and he would also give them pelvics on such a frequent basis that a lot of his patients would start complaining that, like, is this medically necessary? Why do you keep doing this to me? Fucking exactly. There was even a nurse aide because there was nurse aides in this office, at this doctor's office during this time. The nurse would complain to others that he was just playing around down there (gasps) when he was working on an elderly patient while she was in the stirrups. (gasps) And the nurse would even go to the other doctor, Dr. Bishop, 
and say, you need to sit down and talk with Story about how he's handling these women because this isn't happening. I'm not going to allow it. And it wasn't shortly after this that Story decided, okay, I'll just move into Level Wyoming and be a doctor there. So, with this information, we can safely assume that he has been doing this as early as 1958 before he was finally stopped in 1983. Of Paul's final report, he would conclude that there were 22 confirmed victims, 75 unconfirmed victims, and many more that perhaps may never come to light. And you'll find out Caroline Shotwell would say when uh, Paul interviewed her that she assumed he used his penis every day during his 1.30 appointment, sometimes during his late afternoon appointments around 5, 5.30, and occasionally off hours and in the evenings. Uh. So on June 16th, with notes that there had been no admission by story that any of the crimes had occurred, and also consideration into whether or not to basically incar- if incarcerating him would deter someone from doing this again in the future. John Story would be sentenced to six terms ranging from 10 to 15 years on the lesser charges and 15 to 20 years for the higher charges. And this was said to be ran concurrently. Hell Yeah. Story would not react while the rest of the courtroom would simply cry out of tears for joy or happiness. And then, of course, uh, the appeal process starts because right away they're like, no, we're appealing this shit now. Oh, great. So the townspeople would have bake sales. They would have auctions. They would go door to door. They would, again, go hound the juror, any juror member who worked on the case and be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? They would continue harassing victims, being all-around awful fucking people that do not deserve to go into heaven according to the religion that you believe in. Yeah, okay, I actually hate this whole town now. Yeah, it's really annoying. And while um, after these, after this, like, even the judge is getting letters from really important people, um, there's a level physician, Henry R. X. Eskins, who was deposed under oath in an unrelated case in Casper. And in this case that had nothing to do with story, he would testify, and I don't really know what this case was about, but he was just talking about how, you know, he had practiced in Lovell for 17 years. And during this, he would be asked, you know, why did you leave Lovell? And he goes, there's one reason, and that reason is John's story. (gasps) And the person goes, oh, why is that? And he would say, when I have patients coming into my office and into my living room seven days a week, crying and complaining, Dr. Eskins, I felt some spurt in my vagina. And when I looked up, I saw him zip up his pants. And when I found out, he examined twelve a 12-year-old girl's tonsil with his penis, <gasps> but nothing was done about it after all these years. I wrote to the medical board examiners. Nobody answered. They would say, Henry, you know, how dare you talk about him in that way? He's your colleague, et cetera, et cetera. And this went on. And, like, at this point, I could not stomach the filth of Level Wyoming. I had to leave. It was pure filth. 
Oh, my God. And, of course, when the medical board was asked to validate this, they would deny this ever happening. They would say, no, he didn't come and complain to us. What the we fuck? We never heard of that. So as the appeal process begins, uh, they get, like, this defense committee to, one, pay for Story's lawyer, and they were basically, like, all of the supporters gathered around. That's what they called themselves, the defense committee. So this defense committee would go to Judge Hartman, and he would say that, you know, if you pick me as the judge, I'm going to refuse to let Story out on bail. Uh, So the defense committee goes, okay, cool, never mind. We're going to go over to Rollins. And when they ask this judge, Robert A., uh, if they knew story, they would, he would be like, yeah, I don't really know a lot about the case. And they're like, cool, so we're going to pick you. And then he lets story out on a $50,000 bail. Mm-hmm. The town would welcome him back. They would have yellow ribbons out in their lawns and show support. Um, they would get... It wasn't all good, though. Like, they would get some harassing calls of their own. Which, like, either way... I know I'm, like, giving a lot of shit to the people that are harassing the victims, but, like, to the people harassing the story story people, like, I get it, but, like, you just shouldn't do it. It's overall harassing people in general is just not a good thing, so we just shouldn't be doing it. It doesn't matter. It looks matter bad if on like, both sides, both parties. Yeah. Yeah. It, like, doesn't matter which way it goes, just don't fucking do it. That's why, like, yeah, we talk shit about people, but at the end of the day, like, I'm not fucking going over and knocking their door down or right. whatever. It's just... We no. might harass White Claw Incorporated a little bit about sponsoring but us, but just that's because it, okay? we want free White Claw. <laughs> Please, White Claw, call us back. And while, um, you know, they're waiting for the appeal and whatnot, really fucking sad, uh, Dean, the MacArthur family's father would actually pass away during this time Mm -hmm. it was also during this uh time that you know story would get an interview with 60 minutes portraying him as an innocent man and that they're like basically sentencing him to jail for the rest of his life for nothing and you know all of this shit happens like doesn't even fucking matter because thankfully thankfully they would use up all of their appeals, and he would have no choice but to spend his time in jail. Though he would be offered conjugal visits once every four months with his wife, Marilyn. Okay. And the real fucking kicker of this whole fucking story, because I was done with the book, and I was like, wow, that's great. That's awesome. And then my little friend Google tells me, no, because... He didn't even finish one of the sentences <gasps> that he was convicted of because in under 16 years of serving the five to six sentences that he was convicted of, of the 15 to fucking 20 years each, he was fucking released back into society. And the motherfucker is still alive. <gasps> he's still kicking. I thought he died. No, he's alive. Fuck you, Jonathan Story. And he moved back into Lovell where he lives to this day. I found the motherfucker address but i'm not a bad person i'm not going to give it out but i found it old the amount of emotions i felt i wanted to send us shit so bad you should have reached out for a a comment (laughs) (sighs) yeah do you have do you want to admit your innocence on our podcast please i thought he was dead i thought he was too i thought he was too 
Ohio. Motherfucker is still alive. How the fuck old is he? He's like 90, a little over 95. He's Ew. about to be 100. He's about to be 126. <gasps> mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> I thought you meant he's about to be 126, but you mean in no, 26, no. right? I know. I really have a really bad habit of just saying the last year. I need to say the whole year. In 2026, he will be 100. Why? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It really, this really fucked me up because reading the book and the ending, it was nice. You know, I'm like, damn, he's going to jail for the rest of his life. And then I had, I don't know why I had to get on fucking line and ruin my day and ruin y'all's day. I'm sorry, but uh, I I don't want to focus on that. You know, he will be dying very soon and, you know, God and him will have that talk and that will be his payback when... His conversation with God is all the payback I need in this life. So I was well, I'm not just gonna wait for that day. That. I wasn't either. <sighs> <sighs> so I don't wanna end talking about this dipshit for brains. I wanna leave talking about the victims because this is who this story is about. This is who we care about. This is why we're here. So Alethea Dirsch said that she overall felt improved by the ordeal, even though, you know, her family and community still shunned her, even though her rape, uh, she, even though her case was not found, you know, story wasn't found guilty of her particular case, she just really tries to concentrate on the better memories and has really found overall peace of the situation. Emily Meeks would also be shunned and insulted on the streets, though she learns to just smile, eat them up, and say hi. Mm. At 80, she was glad to not have to talk about her husband about the ordeal because uh, her husband never found out what happened to her. It was something she never told him. And she said that in the celestial kingdom where her husband, Ted, waited, she doubted that the subject would come up when she did finally go up to meet him. Mm. Her friend Julia Bradbury never spoke of the case again, and not much is really known of her after this. Of Anelia St. Thomas, she was glad that the ordeal was over and thankful that her husband Nelson had stuck by her side and did not kill Story like he had originally wanted to. (laughs) But of it, she said he was really grateful. She felt that other husbands would have, you know, turned their backs on their wives, so she was really thankful that God had given her her husband Ted. Kayla Fink Farewell would be hired on as a baker at the Bighorn Restaurant, and she would grow petunias and roses for her old farmhouse out on Emblem Road. Mm. She would try not to feel lonely, and it would be years before her or her family would be able to step back into a Lutheran church. But once they did, they gladly accepted God and the spirituality of the church back into their arms. Emma Brasenio McNeil would return to Maine and would never be heard from again. And Terry Timmons would always seem to hold an anger for men, though she would use that anger to help in the Relief Society and even get a part-time job cleaning a Jewish house or a house for a Jewish couple. Wanda Hammond would be forced to unfortunately quit the Rose City Food Farm, and unfortunately, she was never really able to fully recover from the rape, and it was something that you know. To this day, she really convinces herself that she did, in fact, commit adultery. It wasn't something that she was raped and she had no say in the matter. To her, she just thinks of it as different. Yeah. 
Diana Harrison would unfortunately lose her fellowship along with her husband, and the two were actually excommunicated for polygamy. Oh. So, you go, girl. I mean, as, as, if, <laughs> yeah, so I read that and I was like, that is such a random sentence, but okay, you go. That's all I have there, to say about that. <laughs> they're obviously enjoying life to the fullest. Can't blame them. So Terrell Tarp had won his re-election after putting Story in jail, and David Wilcock after this would resign as police police chief, and Judy Cashel would, you know, leave Lovell. She would go back to her hometown where she would be promoted to lieutenant and placed in command of Casper P.O.'s traffic division, and she would also start teaching sex crime investigation at the Wyoming Law Enforcement Academy. Hmm. And of the experience... In whole, she says, you know, for all the hateful things she did, they thought that they were protecting a wonderful, innocent man. He was important to fig- uh, he was an important figure to them, fatherly, almost Satanly. Almost saintly. Sorry, not Satanly. He is Satan, though. <laughs> uh, he, he made them into victims, too, which he really did. And the supporters at the end of the day, you know, as much as I hate them, they are just as much a victim... Not just as much, but they are victims, too. Yeah. A little bit. You still fucking suck. <laughs> Megan Dan Anderson would decide to stay in Lovell and would even be approached by Bob Assay and asked to stand as a character witness for him during his own custody hearing that he had with his daughter. Uh. Meg would say that if she was asked to testify, she would tell the truth. Minda and Scott Brinkoff would also return to Lovell, though they would warn their kids, you know, Lovell's a nice place to live, but that doesn't mean it's completely safe. There are certain people here that you should absolutely stay away from, and she would give them a short list of names, with number one being Bob Assay. For Arden, she had spent two years after Dean's death going around from Texas, Ohio, kind of everywhere before she would finally decide to settle down in Orem, Utah. And she would even fall in love for a second time. And she would marry a Mormon widower named Blaine Brailsford. Uh, Though they said that, you know, when it comes to their time to go to the celestial kingdom, they would both go their separate ways and go with their first partners. Because, you know, Mormon culture, it's like, um, the kids were kind of freaked out that the mom got married, not going to lie. They were like, what about dad waiting for you in the celestial kingdom right because you're supposed to go together as like a whole family yeah and Arden was basically like oh you know like uh, when we die Blaine and I will separate and we'll go back with our wife and husband waiting up for us in heaven that have seen all the fucking we've been doing so (laughs) I guess that's cute (laughs) yeah I mean hey she's happy so you go girl you that's what I like about Arden um she does not let her religion justify how she lives her life. She lives within her religious means. She like kinda. she doesn't let religion live her life. She lives her religious life. Right. Kind of. You get what I yeah, mean. Like kinda, she doesn't sorta, let but the like, religion religion rule her life, but she lives yeah. her, her life how she wants, while still and keeping she's in mind being her religious. Religion. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I really respect that. I like that um, because, you know, our one of our episodes that's really popular right now is The Hair Full of Secrets. And I just re-listened to the intro and one, I'm really embarrassed. <laughs> but two, I say like within the first five seconds, like, oh, I hate churches. And I'm like, ooh, that sounds kind of harsh. But it's just very much, I think, kind of like what Arden realizes is, you know, God does not speak for these churches sometimes these churches go off and do really shitty things in the name of god without you know realizing that that's maybe something that god would have not wanted you to do so she really finds you know that religion within herself not necessarily within the church which i appreciate and i feel like i'm more like but i when i just go out and say i fucking hate the church i'm like oh shit Kristen, you're gonna get burned at the fucking stake but (laughs) i'll be right next Um, to you yeah i'll be on the other side of the stake i know we'll just it's fine you know we'll we'll use that fire that's burning us to light our joints we'll be good (laughs) so um arden would occasionally you know go into lovell to visit her family visit uh her daughters and her sons but she would find it ultimately really hard to go back there because there's just always that reminder the ending of the book which oh is just kind of like a chilling reminder of everything um she would say that you know sometimes not far from minda and uh not far from where minda's house was there was a park and arden would walk into that park and you would see a small little plaque and the plaque would read the beauty of these gardens is our endearing tribute to dr w w horsley the Rose Doctor, whose enthusiasm, dedication, and service to our community made Lovell the Rose Town of Wyoming. <laughs> and it's just, that's how the book ends, and it is very, it speaks depths to even though, you know, we get somewhat, it's not really a happy ending because this fucker's living in Lovell currently, but it's just that mark uh, that this town has and i think that them leaving this plaque up is just speaking dynamics to the emotions and all the shit that goes on in this town right. and how they've kind of allowed it and pacified it but other than that that is the fucking case that is jonathan's story and the rape that he did on the town of Lovell, Wyoming. Holy shit. Fuck, man. Almost 50 pages of pure agony and fucking torture, man. <laughs> Ooh, that was it was a rough one. Uh next episode's going to be not like that. <laughs> I, I can assure you. Just because honestly, like that was a roller coaster. I wasn't expecting some of that shit towards the end, and I am glad Neither it's over. Was I. Very good yeah, job, Kristen. I, Thank yeah, you. man, that ending really fucking took me for one. I, ooh, but you know, he'll get his day when he dies, and it's it's bound to happen sometime. One of these days. <sighs> Unfortunately, it hasn't happened soon enough. Jeez, <laughs> like what the fuck? But yeah, until next time, uh, be sure to. Stay tuned for more. Definitely do not anticipate an episode like this. I'm going to, like, do something crazy and funny just to, like, give myself a break. But uh, be sure to follow us on TikTok. Uh, 
Oh, there's a good one on TikTok we're about to post. That'll make your mood <laughs> real happy. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm going to do that uh, right after this. Yeah, but so yeah, do the TikTok, the Instagram, Twitter, Good Pods. Oh, we are on Bias, Buy Me a Coffee. If you want to buy us a glass of wine, you know, we would love that. We'll shout you out. YouTube. Oh, yeah, and YouTube. At R-A-R-W Podcast. And if you're feeling lonely, go just, you scroll down a little bit, you tap that five stars, you write a review, and then you send us an email. Let us know how good we did or how bad we did. (laughs) We don't care. And if you have any, like, Halloween stories or requests, let us know. Yes. Send us an email at redrumandredwinepodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, guys, stay spooky. Cheers. It's spooky season, bitches. Oh, yeah. And cheers to being spooky. Yeah. It's cheers spooky to season, Halloween. Bitches. Yeah. Cheers to us seeing each other soon. Yeah. yeah. All right. See you Wednesday because it'll be a drunk mystery in history. Yeah. Bye. Bye.